If you're enjoying History's Greatest Cities, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support. I hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, and welcome to History's Greatest Cities, exploring Europe's most beautiful, intriguing, and historically significant cities. I'm Paul Bloomfield, travel writer and history fan, And in each episode of this series, I'll be virtually roaming the streets and sites of a great metropolis in the company of an expert historian guide. Together, we'll delve into origin myths and uncover stories of shifting populations, conflicts and culture, wealth and weakness. And we'll visit key locations that reveal fascinating insights into the people and events that shape the modern city. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Catherine Fletcher, Professor of History at Manchester Metropolitan University, who specialises in Renaissance and early modern European history. Catherine's latest book is The Beauty and the Terror, an Alternative History of the Italian Renaissance, published by the Bodley Head. With her deep knowledge of Florence, Tuscany and Renaissance Italy, Catherine will share new perspectives on the history of this city famed for its glorious art and architecture. Together, we'll explore its pre-Roman origins, its medieval rise to regional dominance, the cultural golden age under the Medicis, and its place in the unified Italy. We'll also meet some of the figures who played pivotal roles in the development of Florence, and discover less-known places to visit for insights into its heritage. Catherine, welcome. Thanks very much for having me. Perhaps you could start by telling us a little about your connection to Florence and what you find so fascinating about the city. 
Well, I was lucky enough to live in Florence for a year in 2010-11 when I was a fellow at the European University Institute and I actually had my office in a Renaissance villa with a spectacular view. So I was extremely lucky and I had to spend a lot of time telling people that I was not on holiday, that I was there to write a book, that I did have a job to do. (laughs) (laughs) But it was a very, very lovely place to spend my time. And I went back there a little later on to research my book, The Black Prince of Florence, which is a biography of Alessandro de' Medici, who I'm sure we'll come on to a little later in the podcast. And, you know, I think it's a fascinating city because it has its Renaissance treasures in situ on a scale that no other Italian city really does. There are lots of beautiful miniature city gems around the place, but just for the sheer quantity that you can see in Florence, it's hard to match. Wonderful. Well, I'm going to try and tamp down my envy for a moment and get started with a discussion about the history of the city. And who were the first peoples to inhabit this region of Western Italy? And, And when was the settlement that became Florence founded? So the Etruscans are around very early on from around about the 9th century BC. And it's from the Etruscans that we get the modern name Tuscany. So we go from Etruscans, Etruria, they're the place they lived, known to the Romans as Tuscia. So we get the Tusci, the Toscani in Italian, and then the Tuscans in Italy. The Etruscans at this time work in a sort of federation of city-states, and they are the dominant power on the Italian peninsula, but they gradually come into competition with the Romans. So from around about the 4th century BC, it's a little bit past the real cultural peak of the Etruscans, we get Roman-Etruscan wars as they're competing to work out who is going to be in charge. Now, the Etruscans are not so much in Florence itself, so I should probably say a little bit about what Florence looks like topographically. Florence, the city, is on the River Arno in the bottom of a sort of basin of hills around. So there are hillsides, lots of places around Florence. The Etruscans settle up the hill. In fact, up that same hill, past where I used to work, in a place called Fiesole. And the Romans, in contrast, once the Romans um, really establish their power and the, the Etruscans get incorporated slowly into the Roman Empire, the Romans move in and in 59 BC, the tradition says, Julius Caesar founds a settlement called Florentia on the Arno and this is going to be a sort of retirement home in a way for army veterans. And so that's where Florence goes. And because the Romans, by this point, are very, very powerful, they can afford to be in the valleys rather than in the more strategic defensive places on the top of the hills. In terms of what survives in Roman Florence, you can see it in the lay of the land. So you can see the lines of the old amphitheatre in the streets and you can see The place where the Forum would have been is underneath Piazza della Repubblica. But if you really want your Roman remains, you have to go up to Fiesole on the top of the hill, take the bus up the hill, and there you've got a beautiful Roman theatre. There's an Etruscan temple, there's a baths complex, and you can really see how the Romans used to live. And that's a lovely, lovely little day out if you want a break from the Renaissance. So you describe it as a kind of a retirement home, if you like, for military types. How did the city develop during that time? And what happened after the fall of the Western Roman Empire that we know about in the 5th century? Well, we do get all the usual things that we would expect archaeologically from a Roman settlement. So there's the amphitheatre, there's a theatre, there's a forum building, there are going to be baths and so forth. But what obviously happens later in the Roman Empire is we start to get early Christianity. 
So underneath some of the modern say modern, the later Florentine churches, you can see some of the remains of early Christian basilicas. So we know that underneath San Lorenzo, which has had a huge restoration in the Renaissance and afterwards, there is a church there late in the fourth century. Underneath the modern Duomo, that's the main cathedral, there's a church from the sixth century called Santa Reparata. And that name brings me on actually to what happened later on as the Western Roman Empire was struggling to hold on because the name of the Santa Reparata Basilica underneath the modern cathedral, that refers to a victory against the invading Ostrogoths that was achieved locally, apparently, on the feast day of Santa Reparata. A lot of these stories from this period are a little bit, you know, unsure. There's something something of myth and legend about them. We don't have lots of very solid sources, for example. But that does bring me on to another tip. Always go downstairs in the churches. Because often you find in these Italian cities that there might be a Roman temple at the bottom and then there'll be an early Christian lair and then there'll be a more modern church on the top. So if there's ever a little sign saying down in the crypt, it's definitely worth going to have a peer around and see what um, medieval architecture you might find. But this is the period when there's a real scramble for power in Italy because you've got what remains of the Western Roman Empire and the Pope's hanging on to power to some extent um, in Rome, you have got the Eastern Roman Empire, which has really stayed in place, based in what's now Istanbul, then Byzantium or Constantinople. They still control, to some extent, parts of Italy, and they're fighting the Lombards, the Goths, the Vandals, all these different people at different points. It starts to settle down a bit in the late 7th century when Charlemagne comes on the scene. So Charlemagne, leader of the Franks, king of what, what's now large parts of France and Germany, he manages to invade and basically consolidate power in northern Italy. So from there on in, things start to, to change. Florence is, a, I wouldn't say it was perfectly stable, but it is somewhat more stable political situation. And it becomes a regional centre. From that period, Florence isn't the obvious place to go for that early medieval period, but in 1013, we do get one of its major landmarks, and that's the Church of San Miniato, which is on the top of the hill on the far side of the Arno from the main city centre. And that's a very, very nice, if quite steep walk up. You will need the ice cream at the top of the hill or at the bottom of the hill. <laughs> it's a good, good excuse uh, or a little cocktail or whatever it is that, that you have on your, your your afternoon out in Florence. But yes, that that is a gorgeous little church and a monastery next door where they, they make all sorts of goodies. So yes, that that's a very pleasant walk up to see a little bit of medieval monument. So we've got a regional centre, you say, we're we're heading into the the 10th, 11th century. And there was a period here where there was rivalry between supporters of the Pope and those who backed the Holy Roman Empire that obviously Charlemagne had developed in that time. So how did that affect Florence and who were these people? So we've got two factions, well, at least two factions, and one of which is called the Ghibellines. And they are the people who are broadly speaking, loyal to the Holy Roman Empire. And we've got the Guelphs, who are more or less on the side of the papacy. And these different factions become important in city politics, in all sorts of violent rivalry. And if you want to get a sense of how this plays out at the time, the best person to read is Dante. 
Because if you ever read the poet Dante's account of um, the Inferno, hell, you will see lots of members of these different factions fighting there, having been sent to hell for their variously violent and unpleasant conduct. So th- this is a, a it's a political rivalry, but it also overlays onto all sorts of rivalries where you've just got local families who've fallen out with one another for some other reason. In fact, at one point, Dante himself is around when the Guelphs split and fall out and then there are black Guelphs and white Guelphs and Dante gets expelled from Florence and sent into exile for being the wrong sort of Guelph, which just goes to show how complicated the whole thing can be. If you're going to Florence, you want to see more about that whole period. The Casa di Dante, the Dante House Museum, does a fantastic job of explaining inside a medieval building all the ins and outs of that kind of history. So we've got a very complicated situation with rivalries with some very interesting names. What did that mean for the city? Was it commercially successful? Well, ironically, despite the fact these people are all fighting it out for power, it's doing very well economically. Italy benefits from being at the crossroads of Mediterranean trade more generally. And Florence has a very, very strong wool trade. You might not think of sheep being the obvious thing around Florence, but, you know, there are all these hills. And so you have pasture, you have wool, and people in Florence start to make an awful lot of money off the back of the wool trade and also off the back of the development of the florins, so the local Florentine gold coin, as a major currency. Florence has solid trade, it has a solid economy, the florin becomes a kind of trusted coin that people will accept in lots of different contexts. And this really helps Florentine banks to start getting established. It's also, however, this period um, when we get into the middle of the 14th century, it's the period of the Black Death and a period in which populations across Europe are absolutely devastated by plague. In the aftermath of that, Florence sees even more political turmoil when there's a big revolt of people called the Chompi, who are the wool carders, in a kind of industrial dispute that turns political. Now the revolt is eventually defeated and the Albizzi family take over, um, the Albizzi being big rivals of some people you might have heard of called the Medici. And the Medici, the, these different big banking trading families start to accrue more and more power within city politics. So you mentioned the Medici. Obviously, that's probably the name that most people will associate with Florence and that region. How did they come to power and what impact did that rise have on the city? Well, they largely make their money by being bankers to the popes. So at this time, the popes, we think of the pope as being a religious figurehead, head of the Catholic Church. But at this point, the popes are not just running the church, they are running a whole swathe of central Italy, the papal states. This is one of the many states that Italy is divided into. And as effectively monarchs of these states, they need access to credit. In the same way that governments today borrow money, governments in the Renaissance borrowed money. And so they start to lend money to the papacy so that it can make investments. And one of the characteristics of this period, without going into all the kind of economic ins and outs of financial instruments, is that they find some quite creative ways to make securities on these loans. So we get this development of a banking fortune. The Medici Bank sets up branches across Europe. They start lending more widely. And at the same time, within Florence, they establish a political network that enables them to rule through the city's structures, not so much by being absolute rulers, 
at this stage, although Cosimo de' Medici, who's kind of sometimes called the sort of the father of Florence, is described in one source as a king in all but name. They get an alliance of supporters and win the city elections and keep winning the city elections. And when there's any risk that they're not going to win the city elections, they set up an emergency sort of government where the franchise for the committees gets a little bit more restricted. So there's a lot of gaming with the political institutions to stay in power, which is not popular with everybody. You get various different revolts at this time, rebellions. We get the famous Patsy conspiracy in 1478 when a rival family plots against the Medici. I'm perhaps getting slightly ahead of myself there, but it's this is a, a story which is one of transition from a kind of more collective medieval commune with multiple people involved in government to one family gradually consolidating a particular grip on power. If you're in Florence, you want to see some of the key sites that are associated with that, then you have got the Palazzo Vecchio, the old, the big Palazzo della Signoria, the Palace of the Ruling Councils, still the City Hall, the building first founded in 1299. So that's in the the main Piazza della Signoria with the clock tower on the top and the battlements, very characteristic with all the sort of little shields, coats of arms of different city families on its frieze. So that's the place to go if you want a sense of the old pre-Medici medieval government. So I think one of the things that's most fascinating about the really powerful, wealthy, influential people throughout this period, the the Middle Ages and, and further, is that whereas today a billionaire oligarch might buy a super yacht. We have this sort of patronage of the arts and culture, don't we? And I guess that's the thing that Florence is probably most famous for as an epicentre of culture in the Renaissance. It is, absolutely. And there was a particular reason for bankers to do it, because banking at this time, um, lending money at interest, was, in Christian thinking, perceived to be a sin. Now, by this time, a lot of Christian bankers were like, well, we can can make a lot of money doing this anyway. But they were also genuinely concerned that this was going to land them in hell. And one of the ways of trying to secure some discount of the time spent in purgatory, at least, was to make significant church donations to invest in religious art, to patronise monasteries and so forth. So we actually see an awful lot of the great art in Florence outside um, the museums is in churches. And it's in churches for this reason that the bankers thought this was a, a sensible plan. But we see lots and lots of examples here. We have Cosimo de' Medici, for example, commissioning Fra Angelico to paint frescoes in the San Marco convent, these gorgeous multicoloured angel wings, among other things. We have the Medici of the middle of the 15th century commissioning the Palazzo Medici Riccardi, what's now called the Riccardi because that was the later family that moved in, but that's the name to look for if you're visiting. Their Palazzo Medici, which has a very characteristic Renaissance architecture in the classical style that you can see outside, um, and then inside some beautiful frescoes in the Gozzoli Chapel, which show the Medici family interwoven into a parade of the, the Magi, the Magi of the Christmas story. And then many of the artworks now in the museums, in the Uffizi, in the Academia. Later on, we get the Medici funerary chapels, and they're also open to visit, so we have incredible tomb monuments. So lots and lots and lots of examples of commissioning of artwork. 
you've got Botticelli, you've got Leonardo, um, we've got Michelangelo, you know, all these big names of Florentine art who we see working on projects for the government, working on private projects for the Medici, also seeking patronage elsewhere because the Medici are in competition with these other Renaissance rulers for who gets to employ the best artists. There is a kind of element of one-upmanship about all this, you know, I'm going to have the top artists, I'm going to try and poach this guy and I can poach that guy. Um, so it's incredible variety of art just spread all over the place. So this is the 15th century, largely the early 15th century? point at which Lorenzo the Magnificent comes in is in the 1470s. So he dies in 1492. The, the 1492 death of Lorenzo is one of those points that people at the time were sort of speculating, you know, was this the great pivotal moment? I think you can obviously exaggerate what the death of one individual means. But I think certainly from there on in, things get very shaky for the Medici for several decades. And what does that mean for Florence once this really influential, powerful clan has kind of been sidelined? Well, initially what happens is a big war starts, which is not directly to do with the Medici. It's to do with, in 1494, we get a French descent into Italy, partly due to an inter-intra-family rivalry about who's going to rule Milan. So one side of this family rivalry in Milan invites the French to help them to fight the other side of the family rivals in Milan. The French are like, hmm, we could just invade the whole peninsula because we have an ancient claim to Naples. They march down the peninsula and while they're there, they're like, hmm, we could take over Florence. So while they're trying to take over Florence, the, the people of Florence kick out the Medici who are seen as being too sympathetic to the French, trying to cut a deal with the French. And instead, what happens is that a guy called Girolamo Sfonarola comes to power. And he is a real hellfire preacher who has actually made his base in the convent of San Marco that was patronised by the Medici. And Sfonarola, for four years rules with this really quite austere regime where they sort of ban paintings, they go around kind of police women for wearing too much makeup. They have these bonfires where people bring out, you know, paintings and poetry books and playing cards and everything else they think is kind of sinful. And there's a real kind of belief that perhaps, you know, the end of times is approaching with the end of the century and, you know, maybe it's going to be some great crisis. Eventually the Pope, at the time Alexander VI, the member of the Borgia family, decides that this has all gone a little bit too far and Savonarola is put on trial and is actually burnt at stake in the main piazza in Florence. And you can see on the ground in the piazza there is a marker of where um, he was executed. So you could actually, that's outside the Palazzo Vecchio, you can go look at a kind of round um, marker in the middle of the square that you can um, look and reflect on some of the kind of brutality of these um, late medieval Renaissance punishments. The Medici are still out of power for quite a while. They then fight their way back um, with the help of the Spanish. They then get kicked out again in 1527, and then they fight their way back a second time, also with the help of the Spanish. And eventually, from roughly 1530 onwards, they get back into power, and within a couple of years, they have made Alessandro de' Medici Duke of the city. And he has the backing of Charles V, who by this point he is Holy Roman Emperor, also King of Spain, and has got the upper hand after 30-odd years of these wars that started in 1494. So you can imagine this is a very difficult situation with on-off military conflict going on over several decades. And 
Although, that said, this is also the period of this incredible flourishing of the later Renaissance art. So this is the period in which people like Leonardo da Vinci is born in 1452, lives till 1519, is very involved in some of these military projects. Michelangelo actually ends up in this last siege when the Medici and their Spanish supporters are trying to fight their way into the city. Michelangelo is there designing the fortifications on behalf of the opponents of the Medici. So there's some really interesting things that you can go around and see when you're looking. You might think, oh, I'm going to the Academia to see Michelangelo's David. You could just be outside, wander around, look at the city walls, and the 16th century city walls are also a Michelangelo project, which is a quite an incredible contrast to these Renaissance men to go from, on the one hand, you're doing some sculpture, and now you're a military engineer, and you just switch between the two. <laughs> and you see, it's really kind of fascinating how the social and the military history and the artistic history all comes together. Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. It, it really epitomizes what we would today call a renaissance man or woman, doesn't it? Being able to turn your hand to so many different skills and crafts. We could talk about the Medici forever because there's so much to say. But obviously they lost power at some point over the following centuries. Can you tell us about how Medici rule came to an end and, and how Florence fared after that? They had set themselves up as dukes. They become then grand dukes of Tuscany. They expand, they take over from the later 16th century, a sort of neighbouring town of Siena. And they're much more, from that point on, like princes. However, they are subject to the usual problem of dynastic families, which is you need to keep producing heirs. And eventually, in 1747, the Medici line dies out. The interesting thing is about the will of the last member of the Medici family, however, is that she provides for the art collection to stay permanently in the city. And there's actually a clause in the will that says it can't be sold off, it can't leave. The Florence we see almost 300 years on today is very shaped by that decision of the Medici family to leave their collection, but to leave it in such a way that they can't just sort of ship it off anywhere that will pay for it. They can't sort of say, oh, the city's a bit broke, can we flog a Botticelli to some oligarch? That's not going to happen. That's not allowed. So they leave the art collection. The rule of Florence then passes to the House of Lorraine. They continue with some of the art patronage. I mean, so for example, the Academia Gallery was founded in 1784 by Pietro Leopoldo, who's later the Holy Roman Emperor Leopold II. 
But there's another moment of crisis with the Napoleonic Wars at the end of the 18th century, at which point many of the Italian states briefly fall to Napoleon before there's a, a restoration of some sort back in the 19th century after Napoleon goes. So Napoleon is quite notorious for borrowing a number of Italian art treasures for the Louvre and having to then swap them back. Once we get past that in the 19th century, Italy becomes unified. And briefly, there's a period when Florence is actually the capital of Italy because the last bit of Italy to join the newly unified kingdom will be Rome. Rome doesn't become part of the unified Italy until 1870. So in the meantime, Florence is temporarily the seat of government. If you're interested in this period of history and you want to kind of see some of the artefacts, the place that I would go is Palazzo Pitti, which has lots of the later collections. It's got a silver museum, it's got a costume gallery, it's got the Ducal Carriage Museum and so forth. So that's the place to go and see the splendour of the Lorraine rule and the later Medici Dukes. So we've gone from a city that made money from wool and banking. It's become a Renaissance powerhouse, obviously, of religion and art. And now it's an important city within the new kingdom of Italy after the Risorgimento. What is Florence at this time? What's its what's its role and how does it develop in those first decades of unified Italy? I think Florence has always had this pull of people who wanted to come and visit the art. So the Grand Tour obviously begins in the later 17th century as a way for particularly young aristocratic men from northern Europe to come and sort of spend an enhanced gap year, some of them more seriously than others, getting some culture, seeing both the ancient classical sites, but also very often going to Florence and visiting the Renaissance art, and looking at some of these, these kind of great works. And that continues. And one of the things that happens in the 19th century is that we get the expansion of the railway network. So Florence and other Italian cities become very, very much more viable as tourist destinations for the middle classes who perhaps have a month to do a tour of Europe rather than a year or six months to do a tour of Europe. And we get Thomas Cook, setting up with tourist tours to, to Europe by rail. And so we get a different kind of variety of tourists being able to come and experience these artworks at the same time. We also get quite a lot of British and American people moving to live in Tuscany. Yeah, there's just this bunch of people who decide Florence is this just a gorgeous culture place to live and let's move over there and live. And of course, by this point, given the difference in the exchange rate and the relative strength of the economies, this was a very affordable thing to do. So if you had a quite an average income in Britain, you could live extremely well in Italy on the money that you had invested. So that's sort of where we, yeah, where we get up to with this real ongoing international interest in the city. And I'm, I'm getting a really merchant ivory picture of a, a beautiful city bathed in a golden glow with Helena Bonham Carter overlooking it. You know, and of course, E.M. Forster comes at the beginning of the 20th century and writes a room with a view. And what is absolutely fascinating to me about a room with a view is that we always think, having watched a film, at least people of my generation do, that the view is of the city of Florence. But in the book, it's actually a view across the river to San Miniato and out to all the kind of poplar trees. And there's very, that very characteristic tree-lined pastoral landscape over the river. I find absolutely fascinating that they, they are there much more for the sort of nature and the peaceful look out of the city. And we always assume, no, no, you want to see the Duomo, you want to see that skyline that they see in the film. 
Well, that's a, another great tip. Find that view to look out over the valley. You mentioned the start of the 20th century, and obviously this was a century when the whole of Europe was in in tumult. Can you talk to us a bit about how Italy and particularly Florence was impacted by the First World War and then what happened afterwards with the infamous rise of the fascist regime? So really with the First World War, what the newly unified Italy has tried to do is to kind of consolidate its northern borders. So a lot of the major impact of the First World War is around the kind of north of the Veneto. It's around kind of places like Trieste. It's not so much on the main kind of part of the Italian peninsula. It's in that kind of conflict with the the Austro-Hungarian Empire to the north. What happens later on, I mean, but that social conflict that follows the First World War is very important in this kind of contest about what's going to be the political future of Italy. And of course, what happens after this, there's kind of two years of major sort of struggle and factory occupations. There's a very kind of lively communist party, but eventually they sort of don't succeed. And in 1922, there's the March on Rome and Mussolini comes to power. Now, where you see that, in, I mean, thinking about what happens in Florence, Florence is not the most obvious city for kind of visual interventions of fascism, except if you arrive by train. Because if you arrive by train into Florence, you will come into a station that is built in that very, very characteristic modernist architecture that was really the sort of signature look of a lot of that regime's interventions. The other thing that you will see at the station in Florence, if you go looking, is on Platform 16, there is the monument to the Holocaust deportations. When coming further on, this is during the the later Nazi occupation, which we'll come on to in in a moment, but a lot of the deportations of Jews from Italy are made possible by the racial laws introduced by the Italian fascists, which meant that Jewish people living in Italy had to register. So there's that kind of whole history going on in the train station. There's also lots of these institutions that were kind of created to promote Italian history in particular ways to international audiences, which is very much something that the regime tried to use and tried to involve itself with. So over this period of time, as you say, Mussolini was trying to shape Italy in an image that suited his mythology, his his messaging, and then formed this alliance with Hitler. So how did that impact on Florence? How Can we see any of that in the city today? So we don't see lots that's very obvious in the city today. I think it tends to be a little bit more the intangible heritage. And it tends to be more apparent, actually, what you see is that if you go out of Florence, up into some of the hillside villages, you see a lot of memorials to the partisans. So what happens with the the relationship? Obviously, for a while, Italy is allied with Germany. In 1943, Mussolini is forced from power. And Italy basically switches sides and Germany then invades. So we have this kind of situation in which Germany goes very, very swiftly from being um, an ally of Italy to being an occupying power. And there's a whole period of around about a year from the autumn of 1943 to the summer of 1944 of this occupation as the Allies kind of fight their way up from the south of the peninsula and the partisans resisting in the hills and so coming back to like what you can see is often if you will go up to the villages outside Florence the partisans are actually fighting this kind of guerrilla war in the hills in the Apennines in all these um, little villages you will see kind of local monuments 
to the village partisans and there's quite a kind of strong local history and strong local presence there of resistance. What you tend not to see so much evidence of, but which also happened, was the collaboration side, because there was certainly the kind of Italian collaboration, and that's kind of part of history that I think is still quite difficult in Italy and still often not very spoken about. Uh, So there's a sort of tension between, there's lots of memorials all over the place to people who were resisting, to people who were executed for resisting, to victims of the various Nazi atrocities, including some fairly horrific ones in some of the Tuscan villages. But, yeah, the story of how some of the collaboration worked is less explicit and less apparent. So as someone who grew up reading the Don Camillo books, you get a feel for that sense of post-war Italy. Obviously, that's the Po Valley and the Arno, but that sense of ongoing tensions between partisans and people who didn't fight, but also quite a lot of poverty in Italy at that time. How did Florence emerge from the Second World War and beyond? Florence was bombed by the Allies during the Second World War. Florence is on main roads and main railways between Rome and the north, so being able to cut supply lines was really quite important. But obviously you can't bomb a city without there being casualties and there are very significant civilian casualties from that Allied bombing. There was then destruction by the retreating German forces. So as the Allies advanced, there was you know, a discussion. I mean, there were various discussions about what might be preserved in terms of, you know, avoiding bombing certain targets. And there was an attempt to say that they shouldn't bomb any of the bridges. But the Germans do eventually bomb all the bridges in Florence, except for the Ponte Vecchio, which is the the very old bridge with all the goldsmith's shops on it that you can still see today. They do save that one. And rather controversially, there's a plaque on it, I think, to the the Nazi commander who decided not to bomb it, (laughs) which causes some local consternation. Yes, eventually you kind of come out of the war. There's there's a lot of destruction. I mean, there's there's been huge bombing campaigns across Italy. Florence is not the worst hit place, but all industrial areas have been bombed quite significantly. So there's a lot of recovery to do. There's a lot of Marshall Plan aid that comes in. But get on to 20 years after the war and Florence faces another disaster, which is the flood of 1966, when the Arno River breaks its banks and floods the city centre, kills over 100 people and also does huge damage to the cultural heritage because If you know the the centre of Florence, the National Library is situated really, really close to the riverbank, as are several other cultural institutions. The Uffizi Gallery is quite nearby. So they estimate that about three to four million books and probably 14,000 artworks were damaged or destroyed in this flood of 1966. And there's a huge campaign effort to rescue these artefacts, then to raise money to restore them. And there's quite a lot of innovation in restoration techniques that comes in with trying to kind of rescue these books and artworks that are covered in mud. But it's off the back of that. The fact that there had been that historic American community in Florence, I think, kind of pays some dividends because There's quite a lot of international relief effort and money comes into rebuilding post-war Florence. Of course, it's now, I mean, it's a huge, huge tourist attraction. Also a huge attraction for students studying abroad as a European city for studying and learning and culture. 
you've brought us pretty much up to date there and you've also mentioned some of those sites that every visitor to Florence is going to see the Duomo, the Uffizi, the Ponte Vecchio and now your apartment on the hillside overlooking <laughs> Florence which everyone will be looking out for. Yeah. Um, could you suggest five sites in Florence each of which reveals something about the city's past and explain why they're interesting historically? Well I'm going to start with the Palazzo Medici which is the original Renaissance palace of the Medici family themselves. And it's situated on one of the streets just kind of near the market area as you head north outside of town. And this is the place where the family actually lived. You can see um, the courtyards, you can see the gardens outside. It was, incidentally, it's a location in the TV show Hannibal, if you've seen that, um, which makes lots of references to Renaissance history. Uh, but I really love it. The place inside it that I love most is the Gotsali Chapel, which is this tiny, tiny space of frescoes that incorporate both these religious images of the, the Three Kings, the Magi story, and the images of all these members of the Medici court, many of whom you can identify. We've got these hunting scenes within it. We've got all these animals that you can spot. So if you go to Florence with small children and they want to play spot the animal around the fresco, then they can do that too. And it's this combination of religious space and glorifying the Medici as rulers and bringing together that idea of politics and power, but also religion. And also the fact that when we go into this space today as tourists, you know, we're in a space that would have been an enormous privilege to be in in the past, because you only got to go into that space if you were a guest of the family, if you were very close. It's the private chapel. It's not a public church that anybody can go and pray in. So you really have a sense of being very, very close to power there. So my, my second suggestion is something I haven't actually seen myself because it opened very recently, and that's The Last Supper by Plautilla Nelly. And Plautilla Nelly is one of the few women artists that we know about from the 16th century. And her Last Supper, which is in the museum at the Church of Santa Maria Novella, is a very rare early example of a large-scale painting by a woman. So most of the women who are active in art in the 16th century are doing portraits. They're doing quite domestic painting. Plautilla Nelly, who is a nun, paints The Last Supper for her own convent. And she's a, f a fascinating individual. She's a an example of actually quite a common phenomenon, which is a woman from a reasonably wealthy family who goes into a convent because her family can't raise a dowry and this is a fairly common practice. So rather than marry off all the girls, they make some of them into nuns. And surely some, some, some women appreciate this more than others. But Plautilla turns to art and she produces really quite a number of paintings, but this is one of the most spectacular and it's been restored very recently and now opened up to the public. So it gives a bit of an insight into an aspect of women's lives in that later Renaissance Baroque period that I think is well worth seeing. So my third one, I think I would absolutely recommend is another piece of religious art. And these are the frescoes in the Church of San Marco. Now, San Marco, the church and the monastery, is very closely associated with the Medici family. In fact, to the point that they would go on retreat there. There's one of the sort of cells in the monastery which was used by Cosmo de Medici, by Lorenzo de Medici. But it's most famous for the extraordinary frescoes by Fra Angelico, which were commissioned as part of the Medici project to rebuild this. And 
you might be familiar, probably recognise it, for these incredible multicoloured angel wings in his painting of the Annunciation with lots of kind of Roman-style arches with little Corinthian capitals as the angel appears to Mary. And that, however, is just one of the treasures that they have because one of the most gorgeous things about it is as you go around from each cell to the next, each cell has a different little fresco in it for the purposes of meditation and contemplation. And so each of the monks there would be able to think, as he's in his cell, to have one of these beautiful pieces of artwork to kind of meditate on and and think about. And some of them are really quite fascinatingly modern and you know almost slightly abstract. They're kind of they have these little parts of people rather than entire finished drawings. So I think that's quite an eye-opening example of Renaissance art that perhaps isn't the famous stuff that you're used to. So fourth, I would absolutely take the bus and go up the hill to Fiesole and see that Roman temple and the amphitheatre. You can get the free view across to Florence from just across the main square in Fiesole. If you walk down, that's definitely a spot to get your photographs. But if you really want a treat, you can go a little way down the road to a very nice hotel at Villa San Michele, also a historic monastery that's been converted into a luxury spot for your cocktails and a view. That will set you back a bit, but if this is a real treat sort of trip, then you might like to enjoy a cocktail there. Finally, I think I would take if possible, walk through the secret passage with the portraits that leads between the Uffizi Gallery and the Palazzo Pitti. So you need to book in advance to do this, but there is a corridor that has lined up along it, portrait after portrait after portrait. And this is the access route that was used by the Medici to go from their palace on the far side of the Arno, to the Uffizi, which, um, as the name suggests, is originally offices. And then you can actually also get through into um, Palazzo Vecchio. And it's just, again, it's a really nice sort of insight into the slightly secretive side of those buildings in that you can't just sort of wander in as a tourist. You have to make your arrangements in advance. Well, listen, you clearly have a lot of insights into the city of Florence from your time there and working there over the years. Is there one ideal piece of advice you could share with visitors planning a a trip to Florence? Yeah, well, having just recommended the super expensive cocktails, I'm now going to save you some money by saying that my top tip is to drink your coffee like the Italians at the bar because your coffee at the bar will cost you perhaps €1.50, €2.00. However, if you opt for the table service and the waiter brings it, it can easily be four times that, particularly in the popular piazzas. There are two prices. If you want to pay to sit down, by all means pay to sit down, but you don't have to. You can get cheap coffee. That was Catherine Fletcher. Her latest book, The Beauty and the Terror, An Alternative History of the Italian Renaissance, published by The Bodley Head, is available now. Thanks, Catherine, and thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.